Father, we pray that this would be the case, this that we've just been singing about, that, that we would see you, your power, your love, your provision, and that we would be glad in you. Father, show us through your word this morning. Show us where joy comes from. Show us how to navigate the pain and difficulty in life. Show us how all of that can exist together. Show us yourself and your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. It was good to be with you this morning. One of the things I, before we go to the, to the letter of Philippians that we'll look at this morning, I want to spend just a moment um, getting you to picture something in your mind. Um, so, uh, so here it is. I want you to picture something flimsy, something that's easy to knock down. And, and then I want you to picture something that is very sturdy, something that is very difficult to knock down. Now, this is where if you're watching online, particularly if you are, if you are a child or a child at heart, um, I want you to go find something that is flimsy and then find something that is uh, sturdy. And I want you to have those with you as we look at God's word this morning. So something, stir, something flimsy and something sturdy. Here's, here's what came to mind as my kids and I talked about these things this week. I'll, I'll show you just in a brief video. So that's flimsy. All right, and if you guess, that's, that's sturdy. So this is what we came to mind. You know, a, a Jenga tower, it's, it's flimsy. It's going to fall over easily. An oak tree, it's, it's not getting pushed down by an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. Um, so the question that I want to be with us throughout uh, this as we look at the text this morning is, is this, about your joy. Is your joy sturdy? So it, does your joy topple over as easily as a Jenga tower, or is your joy as sturdy as an oak tree? How sturdy is your joy? We've been walking through the letter of Philippians that Paul writes to the followers of Jesus in Philippians, and, and Paul is addressing, uh, as he addresses these followers of Jesus, he's addressing them as citizens of another realm. We've been using that term a lot. And as Paul addresses these citizens of another realm, he's talking about, and we've highlighted in the letters so far, these hallmark virtues of this other realm, these virtues of love and unity and humility. Love brings us together, it grows us up, and then it sends us out. Um, love, having the same love, brings unity. Having humility preserves uh, unity. And then the, the next hallmark virtue that we look at this morning, and we've been singing about so far, is that of joy. So let's look at the, the text. We'll look at Philippians chapter 2, and we'll focus in on 17 through 18, but I'll, I'll start in verse 12, just to review and remind us of where we've been, where we were last week in particular. 
So in Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much, or not, sorry, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, so uh, Rob reminded us last week, this to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is to live out your salvation, to live out your faith. And then he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Um, so to uh, this, this idea that it's God who works in us, it's about his glory, not ours. And then he says, um, do not do everything without complaining or arguing. Then you will become blameless and pure children of God in a crooked and warped generation in which you shine like stars in the sky. So two, grumbling and complaining. I love how Rob pointed this out last week. Um, if we are grumbling and complaining, we are not shining like stars in the sky. Our light is being snuffed out as we grumble and complain. If we stay away from grumbling and complaining, then we are shining like stars in the sky as we hold out the word of life. This is the word of life, the, the word that God gave us. As we live into it, as we listen to it, we are holding out the word of life. So then this is where we'll focus this morning, the second half of verse 16 through 18. Paul says, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So first, you know, Paul, the way Paul uses boast is... I don't know why he uses it this way, but we, you know, because just in the previous, in the beginning of this chapter, Paul was very clear when he said, um, you should, where is it, have nothing to do uh, with selfish ambition and vain conceit. So then we hear Paul boasting. He's excited about boasting on the day of Christ. And we often think of boasting with this negative connotation, but Paul often uses boasting with a positive connotation connotation, where he is talking about boasting as in a glad proclaiming that is not self-glorifying, but is, is God-glorifying. So Paul is excited about on the day of Christ, he wants to, to proclaim the work that Christ has done through the Philippian people. As they live into what he has, the way that he has encouraged them to live, the way that Jesus has encouraged them to live, as they live into that, Paul looks forward to the day that he can gladly proclaim that. And in proclaiming that, he is exalting Christ. So he's looking forward to that. Paul has in view the day of Christ. The extent to which that is now, Christ lived, um, living in and through us, and the extent to the which that is when Christ returns. Paul has Christ, the day of Christ, Christ exalted in view. So then he says, but in 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I will be glad and rejoice. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So this is a strange um, metaphor that Paul uses, a strange for us, because it's not, we're not automatically familiar with this metaphor of, of sacrifices. 
But, but this would have been a metaphor that would be very familiar to the people that he was writing to. To burn something on an, offer, on an altar was an offering of praise or, or thanksgiving or an apology to God. It was one of those three things, and you would, you would burn this, um, this offering on an altar. Different versions of this expression of worship would have been practiced by both uh, God uh, fearers and by pagan peoples in the Paul's time. So this metaphor would have been understood across the board. When meat or produce was placed on an altar and burned, then often there was a drink offering that was poured out over top of it as an addition to or completion of that offering. So you have the Philippians, their sacrifice and service of following Jesus. That is their act of worship on the altar. It's their offering, their their lives of following Jesus. And when Paul speaks of himself being poured out like a drink offering on that sacrifice, he's speaking of his life being used up, being spent being completely given as a part of the Philippians' offering of worship. Paul has been intimately involved with with what the Philippians are offering God. He's been intimately involved in their spiritual growth. So his life and ministry is adding to, is involved with the work of Christ in and through the Philippian people. So he's saying, even... Even if I suffer and die as part of the cause to help you grow closer to Christ, even if I suffer and die, I will rejoice. And in fact, you too should rejoice with me. So so that is a baffling thing for us to try to comprehend this morning, this kind of expression of joy amidst suffering. Again, what is firmly in view for Paul is that, that Christ is exalted. This is why joy and suffering can both be happening, can, can coexist at the same time. While he is suffering, the work he is doing is honoring Christ. It's exalting Christ. So I, I think that some of you, um, some of you, for instance, who uh, are foster parents, you, you can step into this and understand that there is a sacrifice that you're offering. There, there is a cost uh, to you being a foster parent. And as you do it, um, many of you do it because you see that as a way that you can honor and exalt Christ. As you do it, there is joy in knowing that your work is honoring Christ. I think of, um, you know, those of you who have served in different ways on the front lines during COVID. Um, For many of you, you have seen some risk and perhaps cost to your life as you put yourself in a place to help others. And and also, as you do that with a desire to honor Christ, you know that your actions are honoring him. So there's there's joy in that realization of honoring him. You know, I think uh, many in our church family are um, caring for aging parents right now. There's, There's sacrifice and pain in that. And as you are working in a way that you know is honoring Christ, there's joy in that. 
You know, I think of uh, you know, what many of us have had the experience in the past and what some are experiencing now when we care for newborns, right? I mean, there's, there's cost in that. It, there is sleep deprivation in that. And you know that's exactly what the Lord is calling you to do in that moment. And, and you know you're honoring Christ. And there's, there's joy in that. The same is true with following Jesus. It will involve joy and pain simultaneously. Living in a broken world reminds us of this daily. Every day we wake up and we read headlines or we hear stories from friends. Every day we are confronted with things that are absolutely beautiful, evidence of God, something to rejoice about. And every day we're confronted by horrible atrocities somewhere in our own life or around the community or around the world. We're confronted with this fact that, that joy and suffering, they, they exist simultaneously. So it's important for us to notice that Paul did not say, hey, Philippians, this walking with Jesus, this is easy. I'm never sad anymore. He, you know, he points to, to second, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about, you know, I've been in prison. I have been beaten. I have been whipped. I have been pelted with stones. I have been shipwrecked. And he tells us in this letter, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So joy is this theme, even if baffling theme, throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Paul says, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So he has joy in the spread of the gospel. In verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about having joy uh, because Christ is preached. And he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. He rejoices in the fact that Christ is preached. He rejoices in the fact that his suffering will end in the exaltation of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Joy in receiving God's love and acceptance despite his not deserving it. He rejoices in the Lord and calls us to do the same. In chapter 4, 1, he talks about the Philippians as he, he calls them my joy and my crown. He takes joy in their spiritual growth. And then in verse 4, just a few verses later, he says again, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy and the solid peace of what God promises. So Paul just mentions again and again our reason for joy, though he's in prison likely or has been or will be. So he understands this joy and suffering are happening together. He's calling us into joy and he's living a life of joy in the midst of suffering. I've heard David define this kind of joy in this way. Joy is a settled confidence in the goodness of God no matter what. Joy is a settled confidence in the goodness of God no matter what. So this brings me back to my original question. How sturdy is your joy? You know, we, we can think uh, just kind of a, a, a light, superficial way. We think of examples of joy or what looks like joy as we look at March Madness. And, and I've seen so far examples 
of, of what looks like joy, right? Yeah, all right, wait a, you know, we see this ecstatic joy and then seconds later, what do we see? What, that was a foul! I mean, that, that doesn't look like sturdy joy, right? I, I think of, um, you know, silly, that when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and I would find out that a girl liked me, and do you know what would happen? Man, was I thrilled with that, and every, just everything about life felt fantastic. And then the next day, I would see that girl flirting with another guy, and I was devastated. And I wish that was an overstatement. <laughs> That's not sturdy joy. So imagine your own roller coaster. You think, you know, you, you do well on a test. Yes. And, and then you get made fun of by a peer. That's miserable. You land the internship. Yes. But then your girlfriend breaks up with you. Joy topples. You receive a bonus at work. Yes. But your marriage is struggling. Joy topples. Your, your marriage is going wonderfully. Yes but then your, your adult children are struggling and your joy topples. Is your joy sturdy? What holds up your joy? Is it, is it held up by, by a single Jenga piece uh, making the whole thing vulnerable? Or is it held up and held in place by an entire root system like an oak tree? Joy is a settled confidence in the goodness of God no matter what. In a way, I think the goodness of God is best pictured on the cross. The result of the cross, as you know, is Jesus conquering sin. It's God, it's him making peace, making a way for peace between us and God. It's making life as it was intended to be lived, making life possible. It's ushering in a kingdom of believers. It's Christ being exalted to the highest place and so that, so that everyone, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the cross is proclaiming. That's the goodness of God that the cross is proclaiming. The cross is a reason for joy. And... The cross is a picture of the most horrible thing that has ever happened. The cross is a reminder of our devastating brokenness. This brokenness that covered, covers humanity, that covered Jesus. The cross reminds us of the most horrible parts of reality. So for a follower of Jesus, I believe that the cross holds up our joy. So this is a strange thing to think about. How, how can it be that the cross holds up our joy? But, but it's, not, it's not an easy, happy, um, comfortable emotions. It's that on which I base my sturdy joy is inextricably linked to the deepest sorrow and pain that has ever been known. And that's what the cross shows me. That on which I base my sturdy joy grew up from the desperate need of spiritually dead people rebelling against a holy God and doing unspeakable harm to one another. 
How can the heights of joy and the depths of, of um, horror and harm and, and sin, how can those things be so inextricably linked? But that's what we find in the cross. Paul's kind of joy, biblical joy, sturdy joy, is inextricably linked to the reality of suffering and brokenness. The reason why the exaltation of Christ and the pouring out of God's love on his people is something to rejoice about is because of the reality of sin and brokenness in which I am otherwise stuck and dying. If it wasn't, if I wasn't so broken and needy and completely unable to create my own peace with God, then I wouldn't need the cross. Sorrow does not contradict joy. It is part of the soil from which joy grows. You know, the truth is, I I look back at my 25-year-old self and I say that this would have just blown my mind. I I think I was relatively spiritually mature as a 25-year-old, but I ran after all things joy and, and denied and ran from anything that had anything to do with sorrow. Denied it, bottled it up, you know, considered it not worth time. I ran after everything joy and ran away from sorrow. My joy was shallow, though. It wasn't rooted. To run after sturdy joy is to fully embrace both the wonder and the tragedy of the cross. I actually believe that sorrow can strengthen joy and that joy can give our eyes and our heart fortitude to look at sorrow, to even pause in it and grow from it without breaking. My joy and my sorrow are connected through the cross. They make sense of one another. So here's my takeaway as I I look at this theme of joy in Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm reminded of the importance to look to the cross to find joy. If you are overwhelmed by disappointment and loss, by unmet expectations or unexpected tragedy and unbearable pain, look to the cross, and you'll find a Savior who experienced all of those things even more deeply than you experienced them. If you've been hurt by sin and failure, by cruelty, by carelessness and brokenness, if you have been rejected by those who were supposed to love you, look at the cross, and you'll find a Savior who experienced who is on the receiving end of those very same things. And if you look long enough, here's what you'll also find. You'll find a Savior who has loosened the grip of pain and sorrow. He was exalted to the highest place, and he now stands and extends to all who follow him 
unconditional love, eternal life, empowered purpose, gifts to share, abilities to enjoy, the ability to love, work to do, peace amidst trouble, love amidst differences, and joy amidst pain. I hope that we can experience sturdy joy this week. Take a minute to pray with me. Father, I look to you and I look to the reason that you give us for incredible, deep joy. I look to the way that you understand pain and suffering. Father, I pray in the midst of all of the pain and suffering that I that we experience, that we would also see and experience a deep-rooted joy in who you are and the things you call us into, the difference makers you want us to be. Help us see your joy, God. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.